Hi and welcome. I'm Daniel Rickman, your mayor and guide to everything that's happening around town. Deep dive with us into the heart of the best kept secret in the Southeast, Columbia, South Carolina. From the buzzing culinary scene to the business trailblazers pushing our city's boundaries, we're here to give you an insider's glimpse into the vibrant tapestry of people, places, and opportunities that make Columbia unparalleled. Thanks for tuning in, and without further ado, let's jump right into the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Town. Very excited to have two very special guests here today. Uh, we have Miss Kamisha Heppard. She's from the French side of Columbia. Uh, and then Mackinwall is here, both of which we would not have the success that we're having uh, today uh, in our with our rapid shelter and our homeless services. As you know, we made a commitment as a city to to try different things, and we propped up a rapid shelter and and had Kamisha come in, be our director of homeless services. Mackin come in, and we stole her from somebody else. I'm not going to mention who that was on air, but we did steal her. And But we're so excited that they're both here to talk about not only the rapid shelter, but the journey, but where we are and in our homelessness, what makes them tick every day, why they, they get up and, and do a job that sometimes goes thankless. But I have to tell you yesterday, if you didn't have an opportunity to see the news, we had an opportunity to celebrate the one year anniversary of the opening of the rapid shelter and had some testimonies there. And I, I tell you, if that doesn't make you feel good about yourself, I don't know what will. Um, the testimonies there, but the support there, 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 there was a big crowd of people there, part of it. And what's beautiful about all of this is that it's a citywide initiative. It ties in lots of departments working together, but we're making a difference one person at a time through one little teeny house, as I like to say. Um, and so I'm so excited. So with that Kamisha, we're going to start with you and just tell everybody a little bit about your background, how you ended up working um, with the unsheltered population, how you, you ended up kind of planting your flag here and being part of this community and, and just, just tell us whatever you want to tell us. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I'm originally from New York. I've been in South Carolina now. I think about 30 years. My oldest child is 27. Um, and so I got my education from USC. And I started my career at Cooperative Ministries, actually. I was the director of crisis assistance over there. I worked there for a while as I was in graduate school. That's how I started, working with, working with the working poor, providing services for them, and then um, I went to transitions as house assistant at the winter shelter and worked there for seven years. And now I'm here with the city. Um, I love what I do. And now she's the director, folks. Yes. I just want to make sure everybody knows her title now. She I is am the, the director. director of homeless services with the city of Columbia. And I enjoy the work. Um, I enjoy, I, I'm appreciative of the opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that I was there from the beginning, after you guys built the pallets, 
You're actually there before we built the pallets. Right. <laughs> I was there in the process. Absolutely right. And so we were, I worked, we worked on policies and procedures and manuals. And I just in, enjoy seeing, I enjoy working with individuals that are in the midst of crises and then watching how they evolve as they work on those goals and objectives, um, watching them become who they are and flourish become stable. I enjoy that. I enjoy um, providing supervision to staff, um, talking things through with challenging um, situations. Because we work with the chronically unsheltered, there are a lot of layers to that. We work with individuals, mental health, substance, sexual abuse, bouts of self-harm. So every day is a new day. You can come in with a to-do list, but that may not get addressed. <laughs> um, every day is different. And the group of individuals that I work with are committed, dedicated, and strong, focused. I've seen them grow over this past year. Um, both young ladies, Mac and Walt and Naija Franklin. They learned so much and did so much. And I'm about to cry for no reason. <laughs> well, it's a pretty passionate job. And for one, thank you on behalf of the 139,237 citizens, because not everybody can take on this type of role. And it's, it's very important because every day, like you say, is different. You know, everybody plans, but the population that y'all deal with, there are a lot of similarities but they're also all individual cases. Everybody has something different and different needs at different times in different ways. And I think that's what excites me about that. This model really proves the fact that, that getting folks into an individual home situation or living situation really lets you get, get them help. They need to just feel that one little bit of space to allow them. And, and I think we're down the right path. And it excites me that, that we're able to do this and we've been able to make, you know, the difference so far. I mean, when you look at the references that y'all have been able to put out there, the partners you're working with, and then, you know, I mean, I think we announced yesterday 32 people. 34. 30, 34. We keep every day. It keeps moving up. Tomorrow it should be 36. It's, and that's exciting because that means we're moving the needle. And we always knew it wasn't going to happen overnight. And it was going to be case by case mm -hmm. basis. Mac and Wall. Let's, let's hear about Mac and Wall. I did get to meet her parents yesterday, by the way. They're very proud of their daughter. They are. They're so sweet. Um, I was actually talking to my mom yesterday after the event and I said kind of what Kamisha was saying about how much Nyjah and I have grown over this past year. If Mac in November 2nd, 2022 could see Mac in November 2nd, 2023, she would be like, there's no way that she makes it through this year. Um, but obviously I'm so glad that I did. I love Columbia. I grew up over the river in West Columbia. I went to Brooklyn Casey high school. Um, and then I went to USC, of course, for my undergrad and my grad degree in social work. Um, I worked for about two years at my home church, Washington Street, United Methodist Church. Um, we and stole I, her from Washington <laughs> Street, by the way. 
I actually met you a few weeks before this job was posted. <laughs> um, the mayor brought, or you came as a guest speaker. We had Cole's kids down yep. in the soup cellar learning about homelessness and making snack bags. And I met you and then the job post, I thought this is perfect timing. I just met the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I worked at Washington street. I was actually the director of youth and family ministries, as well as did social work outreach um, in the soup kitchen which provides a lunch Monday through Friday for our unsheltered population. Um, and then when I saw this job, my mom actually sent it to me. She said, Mackin, this is you. I said, you're right. And I applied and had a few interviews with Miss Wilson, Miss Pam and Missy. And, um, and just having them, I walked into a room full of these just strong women who I already felt empowered by them. Um, and I loved it. And it's been a year I've grown tremendously honestly I can say I'm so proud of myself mm. and so I'm really excited for the future I really am so when we talk about homeless services Kamisha I think it'd be good for you for people to understand exactly what that means because you know I, I don't think people understand all the things that go on y'all want to walk through and y'all can bounce back and forth how you want to answer the question, but, you know, kind of walk through, I mean, homeless services is a bigger plateau. Cause I mean, we're talking about outreach, we're talking about social work care, but I mean, the partners y'all work with, how about y'all want to just talk about what an individual goes through once they've been accepted at rapid. And y'all want to talk about how you bring all the services together. I'll let Mac in talk about how we onboard a resident. Yeah. So <clears throat> on board and unlearning terms, I always, always forget all the nuanced terms, but now I got it down. <laughs> um, I think that the word on the street about rapid shelter is that we're a pretty cool place to be. I think people want to be down there. I um, am thankful. And I'm thankful for that because there are people in this population that I've learned who really make us or try to make it look like we don't care mm -hmm. and that we're distrustful. And I think it's for their own benefit, not for the benefit of the individual. And that's why I'm glad when you say that, I appreciate you making that. I think people need to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do, like you said, I'm not immediately answering your initial question, but, um, we take it on a very individual case by case, client by client, um, level. And so, each individual has an individualized service plan and we don't expect the same thing from every single one of our residents, except for respect and being kind to one another and community service, you know, just those kind of basic things. Um, but <clears throat> onboarding somebody, once we get a new resident, you know, they go through our intake process. Uh, so they'll sit down with a case manager or Niasia or one of our interns even. Um, and we have obviously paperwork for them to fill out, but it's just basic background information, demographics, so we can get to know them and their background. And then they have to sign, you know, our photo release forms, our travel waiver, all that good stuff. Um, and then we try to immediately make them feel like they're at home. So Thomas, our house manager, he already has their pallet set up. So he'll go to our supply closet. He'll get sheets, a blanket, a pillow, hygiene supplies. Uh, we'll have a couple snacks in there. So as soon as they get there, we take them to their pallet. We show them, this is how you turn your heat on. This is how you turn your air on. This is your emergency exit. Um, anything you need, let us know and we'll try to get it for you. Um, and so that's kind of what we immediately do to make sure that they are like, oh, wow, this is different. And this is 
my space. It's my own space. Um, and we see a difference in people in the first 24 hours of them being at the shelter because they can shower. They have, they know that they're going to get three meals a day. Um, we have our wonderful partners who come on site. We have our wonderful case managers who they can go to. I mean, it's just, it's an all, like you say, wraparound services, kind of all inclusive experience. So that's what it looks like when we get a resident. We do the, that initial intake. We make them feel welcome. We make them feel at home. We let them know what the calendar looks like. And then they they plan for their first meeting with their case manager. And so what happens then once when somebody meets with their case manager? Uh, I mean, how, uh, from there, they help get set up for any other needs they need. Because I know that a lot of folks, especially, well, some folks have their IDs and they know what their benefits are, but the majority don't from what, what I've seen, or at least when I've been around and, and getting them into that. Can you just walk through that a little bit and explain to people, you know, because I don't think the general public understands that it's not as easy as just going down and having an ID and, and grabbing your birth certificate and signing. I mean, there, there's some paperwork involved here to, to make sure that the folks are getting the benefits that they deserve. Yeah. I mean, everything, every, and I tell people this all the time. I say, we don't realize how lucky we are. I have a car. I can hop in my car and drive to the DMV. If I ever lose my ID, I have, I know I'll have $10 to get a new ID, um, I haven't actually lost my ID in, since I got it when I turned 21, because I've had a purse and I have a place to go, you know, like my life is different. Um, the way that I function is different. And a lot of these people don't have the, those blessings in their life. And so, yeah, it depends on, it really depends on the person. Some people need to get their ID, their birth certificate, their social security card. Some people already have them. So then we move on to the next set of goals, which might be meeting with Loredac, uh, once a week or signing up with Loredac to go more often, going to meet with Mercy's outreach team, um, getting in with services, whatever that looks like. It's kind of, we, we try to reach those goals so that our end goal can be permanent housing. And then they have that foundation to work off of. So they'll be more successful. And, and I wanted to add, so how case managers get to that is the intensive case management piece. So they assess residents, um, looking at what caused this homelessness, what are the barriers? And then that's how they decide on which resource would be best for that individual. Um, Mackin does well with creating those partnerships with the different providers in the community and, inviting them on campus to be able to provide those services. Um, we have created a safe space for residents so that they can share and be open like Alan did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which was Alan uh, spoke yesterday for the listeners and he had a pretty compelling testimony of what he's been through in his life, death, suicide attempts, drug addiction after drug addiction, lost loved ones. I mean, the list went on and he was such a beacon of light, you know, and it was interesting talking to him afterwards. And I said, you know, you really need to tell your story to more people because especially people who are, are, are debating if they should get help because if they see you, I don't see why they would never, ever turn down help and an opportunity to turn their life around because he, he, he really did a 360 yeah. when you listen to that story. And I, I told him, I was like, uh, for you to stand up there and tell that story, 
that's a huge monumental leap. Uh, it took him a little bit. Kamisha had to get out there and hold his hand for a little <laughs> bit, but he he did it. What do y'all see the challenges that are in our way or the biggest challenges in your opinion that are getting in our way to, to really reduce the homelessness? Cause we've seen an uptick, you know, I, I've looked at some of the figures, uh, which I want to talk about after this too, is, is, is some of those, how it, it splits in the crossover. There seems to be multiple issues with a lot of our, our residents that we've had contact with, but what do y'all see the biggest challenge for us in reducing the homelessness. I think the number one issue for reducing homelessness is um, the lack of affordable housing. So the individuals that we work with, they're either working a minimum wage job or they receive benefits, SSI, SSDI, which is like $795. And so even a studio apartment is about $1,000 a month. So they have to pay rent, they have to pay utilities, they have to eat, just different things that they would need to provide, and they're not able to do that. So I would say the number one issue is affordable housing. Um, then I would speak to there not being enough of beds for residential services. So an individual may need the level of care where they need CNAs, nurses and doctors. Some more skilled nursing. Mm-hmm. or a mental health facility, facility um, substance use. So an individual may need to detox, and so they have a bed for five days, but after that, then they're, just, they're released to outpatient services. So the relapse is pretty destined at that point if you don't have the rest of it together, a, really a place yeah. to stay and supervision and a buddy system. I hate to say it that way, but I don't know another <laughs> exactly. way to say it. Nice you know? plug. Yeah. Exactly. So, and, and that's what AA teaches, um, having that person that you can call. Um, but I really think that the facility is really needed because it's long-term or even short-term services that they need in the interim. It's really hard work to become sober. And if you don't have the right resources, you'll fall every time. So do you see that, you know, you mentioned uh, attainable housing, but it seems like to me, based on the numbers, because of so much mental health and so much addiction, that it, those are the root causes and also part of the problem because those there are not enough facilities to help those folks. So concentrating, would you say, it's really, you got to have three pieces to it. You got to have the the housing piece, obviously, but you really got to have the long-term treatment because you can't, and, and I think you've said this many times before, Kamisha, somebody didn't get homeless overnight and they're not going to get out of homeless and they didn't get an addiction overnight and it doesn't go away in five days. You know, this, this is a process. And I think we heard that from Alan's testimony as well yesterday. So um, that's interesting. You know, and I, it's very interesting. The best thing I like about Alan's story is that, well, it showed the process to becoming sober and that he failed the first time. But then when he decided this is what he wanted to do and he was going to be focused, we were there to say, yes, you're able to come back. 
support was there. Yeah. And we've actually had three residents now who were with us and got discharged or left for whatever reason and came back and they're different. They're ready. They, they're just like, okay, I I know now and I'm ready to change. So it's been really, really incredible. And I, and, and I feel like that the rapid shelter and the housing, the, the small units is what helps that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reading more and more about it, and it seems to be all the same way. Um, that that seems to be the center of, of what's changing people. It's getting them first to feel comfortable in a space, and then they're ready to make that decision. And like you said, sometimes it takes more than wants to realize what's there. What do you see as the biggest challenge? Mackin? I agree with Kamisha. I think the lack of affordable housing, there's not a lack of housing. Uh, there's so many, there's so much housing, but the affordable piece, um, you know, if, especially if you live alone, if you live alone, if you have a minimum wage job, I think I read an article the other day that said you need at least two and a half minimum wage jobs full time to be able to live comfortably in South Carolina. And, um, and I, and so I definitely think that's part of the piece. I think a huge part of the piece is the lack of services for mental health, not saying that we don't have them because we have wonderful partners. Like I said, with mercy, with department, with the department of mental health. Yeah. But but again, it's, it's outpatient or if it is inpatient, it's just for a few days because that's what insurance will cover. Um, and then they're, they're back in the original situation. So we need residential facilities where people can live, where they have that constant support, um, and community. People love community. Every time we have a resident that is moving into a new opportunity, a new housing opportunity, they say, I'm going to miss you guys so much. And I'm going to like, what am I going to do? And of course we say, well, now you're not our current resident, you're our aftercare resident, and you're still going to be part of this community. So that's why it was so special for Alan to come back yesterday and share his story because he's been moved out for a little over a month now. Um, but yeah, I think we need those residential pieces, those residential services um, and facilities. And I, and I really hate to say that because I know there's some stigma around that, especially back in the eighties and nineties. Um, but I think it could be different now. It could be different. Well, I think we know things differently and I think it's much more accepted mm-hmm. uh, in our community. I mean, uh, I could tell you my grandmother and my mother, even when she was sick, um, she would tell you, I, I, I don't want to go to a facility. I don't want to talk to a psych. She was having psychotic moments from, she had ended up having Lewy body's disease, which mm. you can't diagnose until after they pass away, but having the psychotic, but she didn't want to talk to me because she grew up in the era that that was, you didn't talk about it and you didn't go see anybody. You know, you kind of kept it in the closet. And I think today, because mental health is so, I don't want to say in your face, but it's reality. It's here. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's it's in our young people. It's in our old people. I mean, it it's it, it doesn't matter what where you grew up or how you grew up. Mental health is here, mm-hmm. and we've got to address it. And we failed as as a society investing in mental health. And whoever decided in the eighties that that was a good idea to quit investing in it. You know, it's kind of like, why aren't we, why didn't we invest in, in disease research? You know, well, we hadn't had it in a hundred years, but guess what? We had it and we didn't know how to deal with it. I do think there's more emphasis now. And I think there's more openness for people to accept help and want help. Our biggest thing is y'all know is we need more clinicians. We need more 
we need more people in the field of mental health and we need more facility space. You're absolutely right. But also we need more people who truly care, who really, really are passionate, so passionate about yeah. the work. I mean, I shared yesterday, uh, the Latin term or the Latin root of compassion is to suffer with. That's literally what compassion means. Um, and I feel like my, in my personal life, that's what we're called as humans, just to be a good human. I mean, just look out for one another. And I think that that's why a part of why Rapid Shelter, we've been so successful is because, and I can speak proudly about Niasia because she truly, I mean, she, she does everything for our residents that she would do for any of her own family members, you know, and, and she will fight till the end to get somebody housed. But I think the difference, and I think what's important to, to mention is that you're delivering compassion, but you're doing it. There's a set of God rules. It's not mm -hmm. a free world. You right. know, you can't just do what you want, when you want, how you want. You have to be respectful. You have to follow the rules you have to. And I think that's important because they're, there are some folks who believe that, that, you know, we should allow anybody to do anything if they're homeless and that's not solving a problem. And I think having some of that disciplines around with that compassion brings structure and structures where you eventually want to get folks so that they can handle their own routine. Um, it's interesting is when, when you talk about um, getting individuals and making sure that they have an environment around them. The one thing I've noticed lately, and maybe it's just from my vantage point is, is you don't see a lot of folks getting back into group homes or living with other people. And I think maybe is that part of the, y'all see that as part of the treatment. They need time on their own before they can get to putting people with roommates, you know, cause I see the success of the rapid shelter. So those are in, they still have the community, but they got their own space. You know, and so as we're thinking about planning for the future, we may need to think about that. Do you do you build a community that gives folks their space, but also at the same time make sure that they have companionship and people to interact with and, and feel alive? I mean, we did the Blue Zones last night, and one of the nine, you know, things in there is, of course, eating healthy and all that, but it's it's interaction. It's, it's having somebody to care for and to talk to and, and be part, part of your life, even if you don't live with each other. It's that daily interaction. So, Yeah, and I think lon loneliness is one of the biggest epidemics in our world. Um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of people are lonely. And so to have that community and to have that interaction, I actually read somewhere that each stranger you talk to per day adds like, so however many, you know, days to your life, but just having those interactions with people that you don't even know. I mean, it's so important. I try to acknowledge anytime if I'm at the shelter and a resident walks in, Hey, how's your day going? Just acknowledging their existence. Simple hello goes right, a long way. Right. Just knowing that somebody's there that cares about them. It really, I, it really does make a difference. I don't think I addressed what we were talking about, but there you go. <laughs> well, I think somewhat we were just, just talking about that piece, you know, how do you get, you know, our, our folks is the need for more single units that are affordable to really help mm -hmm. people get, 
through the help or, you know, or, you know, there used to be more group homes and I, I don't see that. I don't hear about that as much, you know, people living together and supporting each other and, you know, communal kind of, you know, and getting people to that stage where, where they're that, but they still have their own space because they got their bedroom. But, you know, I, I think there's so many nuances and challenges and, and, and fitting the right, what's the need. But I think we're, we're at the right place, starting the right place. One of the things I wanted y'all to talk a little bit too, is about the population. You know, I think people, yes, we have people from other places, but the majority of the people that we're seeing are from here, right? Correct. So we, the data says 50% is from Richland County, about 17 Thirteen percent is Lexington County. Seventeen um, percent was out of state. Out of state. Yeah. Out of state. Seventeen percent was out of state. So yes, the majority of individuals we are serving is from Richland County. And when we say Richland County, we're including the city. We're including the county, Forest Acres. Yes. You know, Irmo, whoever you know, tied in into that. When the the folks from from out of town, how did they get here? Some individuals get here from out of town um, just visiting somebody and things didn't work out right. So now they're stranded here. Some individuals are here in a treatment center and they fail in the treatment center and then they're discharged, but they're just discharged right where they are, not discharged back to their city. And so some individuals end up here that way. Um, Some individuals hear that. The city of Columbia has everything you need if you're unsheltered. Mm-hmm. And then they find they find themselves here or another shelter has sent them here. So it's multiple reasons why they get here. But we have the Greyhound program where if an individual is from California and they have a support system there, we're able to send them back to California. And that's, a, that's once you verify that they actually have the system in place, right? right? So they'll let us know who the support system is, and then we call them, verify, and send them back. We try our best not to just send individuals blindly someplace else because we know what that That's creates. not helping them. Right. <laughs> Same. right. That's not helping them. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because you hear the stories, but when you, you understand that the majority are right here at home, um. And so how do we fix that? You know, and I think y'all have taken the approach one person, one at a time. And I think, you know, if you think about it in a year to have 30, close to 36 people, that's pretty impressive. Very impressive. Because, you know, I think we all, I think initially when we put the program together, everybody's like, well, you know, 90 days is a good thing, but not everybody's a 90 day person. It can be 120, 180. Two years. Two years. (laughs) You're right, depending on. And um, so it's interesting because I, I think it's good for people to hear where the majority of folks are from. And, you know, I think I think it's fair to say the majority of our homeless are men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, have we have we had the the um, women's uh, pallet units filled completely as well? Yep. I think the women pallets stay full longer mm-hmm. um, because that's the smallest population and women tend to not leave like men. Um, but we have had some. 
Are you saying women are stronger willed? <laughs> Maybe. Mm. I think that's no, but what they I heard do. The, <laughs> <laughs> the women that are at Rapid Shelter, they're very, um, they're just awesome, and their palates are always clean. I mean, I'm not trying to like be like, well, man, but but they are different. I mean, their palates are always clean. They're always asking how they can help. Um, but and, their case manager case management is more challenging. Yeah, it's more challenging. Yeah. So there's some get there. There's there's Everybody has a different, like you said, it goes back. Everything's different Mm -hmm. for depending on the individuals with the, with all the folks that y'all have met and the folks that you're reaching out. And I know we're working on outreach program. How many people do you think are still unsheltered that are out in the community camping and, and spread around because we're seeing it in pockets all over the city, which had never seen until the pandemic. And you know, I know we're doing everything we can to bring people in one by one and try to get the help. But how many more people do you think are really out there? I've heard up to 500. So according to the point in time count data, that was like 984 individuals experiencing homelessness in the Midlands. And so that includes Richland County, Lexington, um, think some of York County. So, so about a thousand. In the Midlands area, how many, how many do you think we have in, in Columbia? If you had to guess. A few hundred, three, three to 400, I'd guess. Cause transitions has over 200 beds. Yep. They're typically always and full. They're, full all, they're always full. Yep. Plus the, the, what they have like 70 or 80 people a day in the day shelter. Mm-hmm. So that's outside residents. Mm-hmm. Those are folks that are on there. I don't Oliver Gospel, how many do you think they're they oh. in fifty or sixty 50, a night? Yeah. I'd say close to four hundred. Sounds all right, all right. Yeah. And so that would be the sheltered homeless. Yep. And so the unsheltered. Too many. Too many for too many. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that justifies even more and more the long-term plan to have the Hope Center, a place where we can have space for folks that are going through addiction and need longer than five days. Mm -hmm. Having a place for mental health um, where they have their own units and they can have that individual case. You know, also having, you know, the rapid and then obviously, you know, having kind of a transitional piece too. I mean, ideally, you know, we've talked about this concept of, you know, close to 500 individual units with a centralized location for, for, for health, because, you know, when transitions was built and other shelters were here, almost all the services were downtown and that's no longer the case today. And, you know, DHEC moving and other things happening over the future really changes the access and, and folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Hope Center, which is part of our long-term strategy to have housing, but also have a central location where you have urgent care, you have physical therapy, you have clinicians on, on site, you have uh, places for people to have classroom working skills, you know, learn computer skills, you know, a library. 
outdoor activities like gardening and having the ability to be outside, a place to do laundry, a place to live, each individual unit having much like a small hotel room where they have their own bathroom, their own, their own space, but getting all the services in one place instead of having to travel and really trying to excel their recovery by everything being there. And we're talking about partnering with DHEC and DMV and, and Department of Health, you know, telemedicine, having DMV be able to get people their IDs on site instead of having to take individuals by themselves, which is any of us who've waited in line at DMV, it's challenging for us. And we usually have all our stuff. And for folks who aren't used to that and then have other stuff, the impatience, then a feeling uncomfortable in that crowded scenario, let alone, well, if you don't have this or you can't answer the question, you know, all the stories I've heard from volunteers who have taken them. So long-term, you know, it sounds like we're, we're headed down the right track because it, it seems to me that the pallet home shows us that individual space really makes the difference to get people to buy into going ahead and getting help instead of of living on the street which is just not healthy for anyone no and another really awesome thing about the hope center and having everything in one place which is what we try to do at rapid shelter by bringing partners on site is because transportation is such a barrier for our residents. Um, You know, I I love the Comet, but it's difficult to catch a bus on time. Um, The bus station is a 30-minute walk from our shelter. Um, And so having everything in one place is it's life-changing. And we have residents that I'm like, what are you up to today? And they say, well, I'm staying here because, and we encourage them to stay on site 24 seven. Cause they say, I don't want to go out there and run into so-and-so and maybe you'll get myself into trouble. They know that. And so having the hope center and having everything all that wraparound services all in one location, um, not having to rely on transportation, not having to rely on other people. Having a pharmacy there we, when right. you know you get your subscription prescription field. We have had people come. We've had taxi drivers come down to the shelter to pick up a resident who maybe was going to CVS to pick up his prescription and they saw that it was a homeless shelter or maybe they saw the person and they left. Turn around and left. Say I'm not coming back here. It's a real real barrier. Yeah. And that's discouraging for those yeah. those folks who have it's taken awful. the leap to get there, you know. Um, you know, one of the questions that people ask all the time is that how many folks in that unsheltered population just are no matter what's provided or who talks to them or whatever are not going to come get services? I mean, when you see that, because I know that, you know, we talk a lot about mental health and addiction being the bulk, but I think there, the, from what I understand, there is a population that's just not going to change. They've chosen this life, but how do we, is there a way to get to those folks? Do you see that as that there's a barrier with some folks to get them no matter what you try or do or reputation you build up, the trust? So that there is a, a resistant population. Um, and you would say, I would say that Sister. they've made a decision. Um, they've made a conscious decision to live the way they're living. And then whatever that conscious looks like, because we do talk about mental health. So because they're not taking their medication They've made that decision to live unsheltered. I know individuals who live unsheltered and have no mental health diagnoses. They live in the woods. They go to work every day. They've made that decision. Um, and, And I don't have the answer to that. Like, what can we do 
to interest them in services. Doesn't mean that we don't try. Mm -hmm. So outreach still tries to engage individuals, um, you know, check in on them, make sure everything is okay. You have what you need. Are you ready to come in yet? They're still resistant. I think that's a great segue, Kamisha, to, to maybe tell folks how many interactions does it take to actually get someone to, to trust the outreach worker or social worker or whoever that point of contact is to get folks to take that leap and, and say, yeah, there, there is a better option for me. I can't put a number on how many engagements it takes to bring a person in. But what I do know is that sometimes it takes 30, 45 days to engage a person before they even say they'll just come to the center, come to Rapid Shelter, go to Transitions Day Center. It, it, it takes over a month sometimes. And they just have to see that you're committed, you know, you're continuing to come check on them, making sure that they're good. Then they start to trust a little bit and they'll come in. Yeah. We had um, a lady who told us that she was one of the first referrals we got last year, but she didn't want to come to rapid shelter yet because she wanted to see how it played out. Um, And then a couple months later, you know, she was like, Oh, well people seem to like it. And so she came and now she's housed. Um, So that's a great example of someone who was resistant to our services. Um, And now it's a success story. Yeah. But there is a large of a large group of individuals who are resistant. So yesterday was the first day of the overflow opening. We had 63 people. It was freezing last night. And I know that there's 240 beds at the overflow. I know that it's enough individuals on the street to, to fill, fill the that. beds. Yeah. And they didn't show up. Which is amazing to me. Um, you know, usually the, the wintertime gets folks in and I'm hoping when they see what's there and, and what goes into the day and what services are there and the opportunity that they'll buy into it. You know, the worst thing that happens to us, we got to get more <laughs> pallets, but uh, that's, that's, that's interesting to see. And I'd be really curious to see how that plays out in the rest of the winter, but you know, getting people is, is not easy. And it's not just a bed. They get a meal, they get two meals, they get dinner, they get breakfast and they get the opportunity to shower. So it's not just a bed. And so, and we also have outreach at the overflow, trying to gauge them in that environment, trying to say, you know, tomorrow you can get a bed at the shelter. But that's one of the baffling things about this profession. But, and I try my best to explain this to different um, business owners and homeowners. There is a resistant population. And just trying to get them to understand the dynamics so that they know that we are trying everything to engage individuals, to bring them into services, to get them housed appropriately. But some just decide not to. Well, I'm hoping that as we continue to build up the reputation that we can get more and more folks to take advantage of the services that are here and and get off the streets and realize, you know, uh, I saw a lot of people today wandering around you know, um, as the weather warmed up and, and you could see them moving and shifting to different areas and you see folks and yeah, there, there's certain folks I see all the time, but they're, they're not, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. They don't, they're not ready to go. Um, 
Right. And it has to be up to them. They have to make that decision. It's not up to us. We can do everything we can try, but it's not up to us. But at some point, we've got to figure out a way to get people in at least to take one step forward to join us because it's just not healthy. It's not a good place to be there. there, There's nothing those folks can tell me that living on the street is better than having a bed and a meal and somebody who's there trying to, to help you. I I just, I I don't understand it, you know? Um, And I struggle with some of the providers that are out there who constantly are enabling folks but they're not trying to get them to take that leap. You know, you've built up this layer of trust, then, then they sh- help them get out of that situation. You know, keeping somebody living at the riverside or under an underpass, bringing them meals and clothes, not helping them. Yeah. That's not, that's not what we want for folks. And, and look, I know there are folks out there that, that they choose this life. I remember when I was working in Five Points in college, we had a homeless man who lived in Five Points. Everybody knew him. Um, But he chose that life. He had money in the bank. He could go get money and he could buy a meal. He didn't want anything from anybody. He just wanted to live in the alley. That's that he made that choice. Um, And no matter what you thought, and it took everybody for a long time because we were always Mm -hmm. trying to help him. And he's like, I don't, I want anything. Yeah. He just, he chose that life for whatever reason, whatever traumatic episode happened in his life. And that's, that was one of the times when housing first, I had my first experience with housing first. There was a young gentleman. Uh, he was, he was not from here. He was, he was an immigrant. He didn't speak for three years. I watched him shower in a hose and walk up and down the street and it would be the summertime. And this, this gentleman would have on like 20 sweaters and he wouldn't talk to anybody. He wouldn't accept anything from everybody until one day the, the uh, outreach person from housing first got him and he, he committed and he went. And he got help. And, and apparently now he is out there helping folks in his same situation. And and so I know it works, you know, I know it works, but it literally took them three years. Right. Cause you don't know what trauma they experience. A lot of our residents have experienced some, if not multiple episodes of trauma, um, and maybe, you know, I, we had a resident in the dead of summer who had on, who would wear just long pants and sweatshirts and boots. I said, are you not hot? Oh no, no, I'm fine. You just don't know. We had a resident who wouldn't shower. I tried so hard to get her to take a shower. And, and she just, when I said, I'll, I'll even lock the door, I'll stand there, whatever it takes. And, and we just don't know, no. you know, what is making them what made per, first of all, what put them in this situation, but what's keeping them, we don't understand you know, what happened in their childhood, what happened in their family, their supports. I don't know. I mean, it's just life is crazy for so many people. Um, and all we can do is, is what we can do. And I think, I think we're doing a good job. Um, I think there's, I think there's a lot that, um, still to be done, but like a, that you, happened overnight. that's why we take those individual steps with each person. Cause we just don't know what they've been through and how to approach them. Yeah. One of the things I want to make sure that we cover and that, that y'all talk about too is, is people are always reaching out. What can we do to help? 
So maybe y'all could talk a little bit uh, about what people can do to help, not only obviously with the rapid shelter, but in general. Uh, and I encourage people not to give cash. Encourage them to find a service to to give if they want to help or volunteer, provide a meal, you know, take time out and have a conversation with somebody. But maybe maybe y'all could just share some of the things that would be helpful to to try to make a difference. Um, because I think the more people we can help, the better off we're going to be. I'm going to start off with that. Um, I'm start off talking about the pilot program we have with Christ Central. I think for individuals, agencies who are interested in feeding the unsheltered, I think they should reach out to me and coordinate and coordinate a feeding at Christ Central. I think that's helpful because now we have identified a place where we can feed individuals in a safe, warm environment with restrooms. Um, And it's better than feeding a person on a corner or under the bridge. Um, I know individuals are passionate and they think this is what they should be doing. But I would ask an individual to look at the aftermath of that. You know, when you feed, when you're feeding someone on the corner or under the bridge, they don't have appropriate places to put the trash. They don't have a place to use the restroom. And then, so they're doing that on individuals, um, business steps in their, um, parking lots. So I think it's really important that we try to make this pilot program successful because we can feed individuals in a safe place and also provide services. So that's the objective, that while we're feeding and we have their attention, that we can have outreaches, outreach workers present um, from mental health, from substance, from the shelter. They're trying to engage individu- individuals and build the rapport at that time. I want um, individuals, agencies just to give it their best effort for this pilot program. That's what I would ask. Um, They can help out that way. They can um, also help out. um, I'll let Mac and talk more about. And I want to add to that, Kamisha, one of the things I keep hearing, and especially some of the emails that I get from folks who are out there, there's a lot of misinformation about it. And, you know, I think some of that is from some of the stuff that's been posted on the Internet by individuals not telling the truth around this, uh, the rumors that, you know, you're going to be indoctrinated into some Christianity, uh, that it's not a safe haven for folks in the LPTQ community, which is not true because we went and rented the space to make it a neutral space for a reason. Um, and, and I'm a little put back. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I say it. I'm put back at some of the individuals who said, well, I, I only want to serve my population. Well, wait a minute. Uh, I thought your mission was to make a difference. So why can't you join forces with somebody else and serve more? You know, I, I find it very disingenuous of some of the folks that it's their population. It's not your population. <laughs> These folks are unsheltered and we've got to do everything we can but if you're only feeding them and you're not helping them try to get help and off the streets, then you're not doing anything. You're just keeping them down, in my opinion. So what I would say, and I would say this confidently, no one, no unsheltered person in the city of Columbia is starving. I will say that first. Um, Christ Central is a church. However, um, we don't implement any religion in that. So we do have churches that partake in the feedings. If a person is accepting to it, they will witness to them. But if not, it's not 
anything mandatory to get a meal there. Um, we are trained, and I intentionally make sure that my team is trained in being culturally diverse and aware. We treat everybody the same. We, there's a no judgment zone. So we don't, um, we don't, and the individuals that volunteer don't discriminate against individuals' race, color, sex preference. We don't discriminate. I have these conversations with each church agency person that coordinates with me to feed at Christ Central. Um, I'm really intentional about how we provide services. Um, I'm, I'm accountable for the work that we do. I know that I work for the city of Columbia, but I'm accountable for how we treat people, for the people that come behind me, how they treat people. So I'm real sensitive to that. Well, also, no, based on the numbers and the the, uh, the interactions y'all have had, y'all have had the LPTQ community folks involved in, in the rapid shelter and been yeah. a part of the referral service. So, I mean, uh, it makes it, it's a little mixed message out there from folks, but, you know, we continue to preach and we're going to keep trying. You know what? At the end of the day, if it doesn't work, then, you know, we can deal with that, but we're going to keep trying because I, I agree with you. To me, there there's nothing you can tell me that a person doesn't want to sit down at a table. They don't want to go to the bathroom in, in inside. They don't, they want a meal prepared in a, a, a real kitchen. They want to feel, I mean, to me, that's dignity. You talk about compassion and dignity, offering somebody a place at a table. Mm-hmm. It goes so, a long way than handing a sandwich on a rock. So one of the objection, objections was, I'm prepared to p- feed 40 people. If I come to Christ Central, it's going to be 100 people. So we offer that you can join another church and you come prepared to feed 40. They come prepared to feed 50. Then we have enough to feed the masses. Um, so I think we really tried. I mean, we I think we really tried to um, close the gaps, take away all the concerns. Um, But that's what I would say we need help with. And I think it's just going to take time. I think when when it starts, um, it starts underway. And I know Kamisha was on the phone today with multiple people who want to do a feeding from Christ Central or out of the back of Christ Central. It's just going to take people seeing that it's working. And that that is a safer place for people to be. Um, Let alone to, out of the elements. Right. A place where you can be warm, cool, safe from the rain. Yeah. What, I, and But if people want to help in another way, what else can they do? I mean, I know y'all collect uh, toiletries, you know, you, you, you bus passes. I know you, you steady line of stuff. What else can people do to help? Yeah. So bus passes, honestly, is one of our biggest things. Like I said, transportation is a huge barrier for our residents. And so if we can give them a bus pass, if they have a job interview or even to get to a job, sometimes we'll, we're able to give them a 30 day bus pass or a seven day bus pass. And then for that whole month or that whole week, they don't have to worry about getting to work. They don't have to worry about going to their treatments or Laredac, whatever, whatever that looks like. Cause, um, we have a van, but we're not all super, super people. So we do what we can, but we can't be in seven places at one time. We'd be, yeah, that would be awesome. But no, so bus passes are a huge thing that help us. Um, I will say that right now we are collecting just winter gear, uh, coats and 
socks and hats and just stuff. Gently used, Gently whatever. Gently used, clean, no Gloves, bed bugs, hats. please. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything that can keep somebody warm and comfortable. And we also will let um, the overflow clients have them as, as well because well, um, they're the ones that are out on the street and our residents have a heater and those heaters work very well in the pallets. I mean, it gets toasty in there. It's nice. Um, they, they say my heater's broken. I said, no, you just have it so dang hot in here that it cut off automatically. (laughs) Um, so yeah, our residents, they're, they're pretty warm at night, which is really great, but, but we are collecting those items for when they're walking to the bus station. Um, and volunteering, just having people that come to the shelter who, our residents see them and they think, oh, wow, these people took time out of their Saturday to make us breakfast and come serve it and bring us items. And some people like to come out and pass out the items themselves. So just having a presence there and showing um, showing our residents that they do care and that there are people that are wanting to help. Um, we have an amazing church who's even helped with rental assistance, stuff oh, like wow. that. Uh, so I know I can call and say, hey, so-and-so is short 50 to 50 bucks. We got you. And we say, Hey, don't let this happen again. And it doesn't because they, they, you know, I mean, it's just a really great, really great thing to do. So anything that people would want to donate, I would take. Um, yeah. Time, and and I'll say even resources, even their talent. So if you are a retired counselor, um, and we take it, we take as many of those as we could get. <laughs> <wouldn't we? laughs> yes. But yeah, that's a good point too. We have a volunteer who comes and does music therapy, which is so fun. Um, anyone I, we have actually, my dad, he is, he has his PhD in like mindfulness meditation. Um, and he comes and teaches, I need to call him. right. And it's really good. He teaches us how to use our breath, how to do these breathing techniques when we're stressed out. Um, so if someone has a specialty in something, I have a guy that's going to come to a, a women's self-defense class. He was telling me something he can, he can teach them how to break someone's leg. I said, don't teach them how to do that because then they'll be breaking everybody's legs. Um, but yeah, so anyone who has any special skills or talents, I would love to hear from them. That's great. Well, believe it or not, we're over an hour. How know, fast did that go? And I have a meeting with my staff in one minute, uh, well, but I told them I'm running late. So yeah. okay. Hey, so everybody, thanks for choosing to listen to around town, learning more. Um, but if you get a minute, if you run into Kamisha or Mackin or any of the team, you know, tell them thank you for what they're doing. Number one. And number two, if you, if you have an opportunity to help in any way, please do, as you know, we are trying to make a difference across our city and we, we don't want any of our population left out. Um, and our unsheltered is our most challenged area and, and the population has grown, not reduced. And so we're going to have to all work together, uh, on the solution. And that solution is coming together and it takes one step at a time. It's not going to happen overnight. And, um, so let's work together and, and thanks for listening until next time. <laughs>